Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I just all of a sudden had this desire to express myself in uh, the hip hop forum. I was a huge fan of Nas and I bought a cassette tape. It ain't hard to tell, which was one of Nas's first singles. And I bought it and I hid it from my parents and they found it two days later, which in hindsight, I was almost mad that I was found out. Right. And it turned into a huge argument and I threw my clothes out the window. We lived in a one story home. I put all my clothes in a plastic bag, threw them out the window and jumped onto my clothes and ran to grandma's house because I just felt there was no privacy and I was making a stand on what I wanted for me. And it turned out to be one of the best decisions in my life. Hey there, we're back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. I'm Light Watkins, your host. And if this is your first time listening to At the End of the Tunnel, thank you for tuning in. This is a podcast about hope, and I bring on people who have been using their art or their platform in the name of service, or they've started a nonprofit, or they've initiated a movement for social good, or they produce something that makes the world a better place. And so this week, I'm bringing on one of my personal inspirations. He's not somebody who started a traditional nonprofit, but he lives his life in such a way that he's inspired many people who follow him to follow their heart, to do what they love, to take leaps of faith. And you know I'm all about a good leap of faith. His name is Chris Classic. And I've been following Chris Classic on Instagram for a while, and I was just really inspired by his openness and transparency and the stuff that he shares about his life as a father and a husband and an entrepreneur. And I noticed that I would often feel uplifted after coming across his feet. So fortunately, I have this podcast where if I feel called to reach out to someone who I admire, I can always invite them onto the show and get to know them better and share their story with my audience. And so my conversation with Chris Classic did not disappoint. As you'll hear, Chris grew up in New York as a Jehovah's Witness. And after his parents discovered a Nas tape that he had hidden in his bedroom, Nas, by the way, is a famous rapper, for those of you who don't know. Well, that turned into an argument because of his religion. You're not supposed to listen to rap music as a Jehovah's Witness. And so, of course, he was obsessed with rap music and he took a stand and it became a whole thing. And he ended up running away to live with his aunt, who happened to be married to a man named Reverend Run, who was probably the most famous rapper of my generation because he was a part of this group called Run DMC. And that turned into a mentorship where Chris and Reverend Run ended up co-writing songs together. One of their songs became a hit called Let's Get Married, the remix. And Chris became a successful songwriter, which he ended up doing for several years. 
Later, he got married, he became a father, but the marriage didn't work out, unfortunately, and Chris began posting inspirational content about his experiences co-parenting on his social media, and he started gaining a bunch of followers, which then encouraged him to continue sharing in that very transparent way. Well, one of his followers who had seen some of his messages reached out to him and asked Chris if he could get together with him and get some life advice. And this person ended up being a perfumer. And so Chris agreed to meet with the perfumer if he would in turn show him how to make a custom fragrance. And this led Chris Classic to start dabbling with fragrances, which turns out he was pretty good at. And that dovetailed into a new opportunity to create his own fragrance brand called Savoir Faire, which is an artisanal brand of fragrances that Chris now hand bottles, hand packages, and distributes from his home base in Atlanta. And what I loved talking to Chris Classic about is how he views his brand as more of a service than a product, and how he's aware that he's got eyes on not just what he makes, but on who he is and how he shows up in the world as a father, as an entrepreneur, as a husband, and as a black man operating in a field where most people don't look like him. So I'm excited for you to hear our conversation. I think you'll be very inspired as well to follow Chris's journey and maybe even to take a leap of faith into your version of something like a perfume brand, something you may not know a lot about now, but there's something inside of you that is nudging you and encouraging you to take that leap of faith anyway. So without further ado, I introduce you to Mr. Chris Classic. So Chris Classic, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you. I've been following you on social media for a little while. I'm really inspired by the things that you post, and I can't wait to talk more about that in this interview. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. Now, you grew up in New York, right? Yeah, in um, Hempstead in Long Island. So it's okay. the suburbs of New York City. <laughs> All right. So when you think back to little Chris Classic growing up in Hempstead, <laughs> what was your favorite toy or activity as a kid? My favorite toy or activity. So I think I relegated all my entertainment to sports. And it was usually sports that I got to play by myself or with other kids my age who were also Jehovah's Witnesses. That was oh. that was the prerequisite. So there were tons of kids on my block, but I couldn't play with them. So I could only play with other Jehovah's Witness kids. So my childhood memories consist of a lot of looking out of the window, wishing I could go out, and then having to wait until parents arranged play dates. That wasn't your prerequisite. That was your parents' prerequisite that they needed to be Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, you know that certain things are your own, right? Like, you, you know, you may understand the concept of God and faith, right? But at the same time, if, you know, Marvin down the street does something bad, I think I know better than to not do that. I just want to play basketball. That was a, a down moment about childhood, not being able to do exactly what I wanted. But thankfully, there were a lot of kids my age that uh, I eventually got to, got to play with. Because they were Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh-huh. So you guys lived in a little Jehovah's Witness community? 
No, not necessarily. It was just that we sought out other witnesses and made sure that we spent most of our time associating with them. And so in my family, I was the oldest grandson. So all of my cousins were way younger than me. So I, you know, I didn't really, I I was kind of a, a loner kid. Talk a little bit about your household. What was that like growing up as a Jehovah's Witness? And what does that even mean compared to like a sort of normal or conventional American household? Well, a lot of people have assumed that the Jehovah's Witness organization is kind of like a cult. And I wouldn't quite say that. What I would say is that Jehovah's Witnesses are not afraid, but apprehensive about associating with people whose habits aren't aligned with their moral compass. And because of how influential and impressionable young minds can be, I think a lot of focus was put on keeping young people away from other non-witnesses. So growing up, it was very regimented as far as what our schedule would be. You know, going to the Kingdom Hall or going out into field service, knocking on people's doors. And, you know, that had its own level of embarrassment. Right. But it was also accountability because there were certain things that I just couldn't do, knowing that I was going to be perhaps knocking on somebody's door. So it was one of those things. It was just like I would say it was as involved and as serious as anyone who grew up as a preacher's kid. Right. Like if your dad is the pastor of the church, there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with that. And I think all Jehovah's Witness kids, at least in my era, grew up with that same stigma and that same responsibility, accountability. And you can't hang out with anyone that isn't aligned. Were there any sayings or philosophies that you remember your parents echoing as you were growing up, just about life in general, not necessarily about religion. Yeah. Bad association spoils useful habits was the biggest thing that I would, that I distinctly recall as a kid. And quite honestly, there are many things that may have had a scriptural or a religious connotation then that can be applied in any capacity today. If you're an entrepreneur or you, you know, you have a small business, hanging out with people who may not be fiscally responsible may not be the best influence on you. You know what I'm saying? So I think in hindsight, I've been able to take some of the things that I looked at as fences and boundaries, and I'm able to appreciate them, most of them, as things that I can apply still, you know, at I'll be 42 this month. So it's it's one of those things that If you look at it and make it applicable to now, you can. Any stories, embarrassing stories stand out from that time in your life when you were going around knocking on doors or anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think I was about 11 and I was not supposed to be having any interest in girls at all. You know, like basically... In my house and in the Jehovah's Witness organization, it was kind of like, hey, you're dating to be married, right? Like, that's really what the aim is. And I remember I wrote a note to this girl at school, 
And it was as flirtatious as I knew how to be, right? I, I mean, it was probably corny as hell in hindsight. And I didn't know where she lived. And bro, that Saturday, I knocked at her door. And <laughs> you know, it was just like, man, I, you know, I just felt like the biggest cornball ever, you know, and I'm in my suit and, you know, my mom is, with, you know, it was just crazy. And I played a cool, I was like, hey, how you doing? But I think that was at the time the most embarrassing thing. My mom and my stepdad got married when I was five and I've been a Jehovah's Witness from five to like 15 when I left home. And so it wasn't much embarrassing anymore because around Hempstead, people knew me as a Jehovah's Witness kid. So it wasn't much more embarrassing than that particular thing. In that situation, do you have a script? Because I can imagine that could be really good training for sales in the future, like knocking on people's door and trying to get them to change their religion. No, there's no script per se, but the magazines Jehovah's Witnesses offer people that changes monthly. And so basically there's no like hard script. However, what you're talking about that changes is whatever the subject of whatever the magazine is. So kind of forces you to be kind of well-read and well-versed, you know, because you have people who want to challenge you all the time. You know what I'm saying? So I would say what is similar uh, when I was in college, I did like telemarketing. And what is similar is there are rebuttals that you are kind of trained to be able to offer people, you know, or people who say, well, I don't believe in this or, you know, you guys don't celebrate Christmas. Right. And I, that's a deal breaker for me. OK, well, here's why. Right. So it was always those kind of things. But other than that, there was no script. I still want to stick in that part of your life. But a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was looking at some of these dating advice coaches and these kind of guys. And they, one of their main principles is you have to expose yourself to embarrassing situations because a lot of times you'll stop yourself from the fear of being embarrassed, right? So if you, if you consciously put yourself in a situation where there's a high probability of being rejected, then you'll be able to move through that and you'll, you won't, that will no longer be a barrier to you going up to a woman or whatever, asking for her number. And I can imagine you got rejected a lot in those years. So does that sort of make you immune to rejection at a young age? Yes and no. I think me personally, and I can't speak for everyone, but me personally, I separated myself from that rejection. I think whatever level of faith and belief that I had as as a kid, it was, hey, God said I'm supposed to be here. And if you don't answer or, or you you reject what I'm telling you, you're not rejecting me personally because it's not my message. It's God's message. And I'm just supposed to tell you what God said. So I, I think I've been able to separate rejection pretty well. But what I think it did do is I desired approval intersectionally where I could. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm this guy and I'm the Jehovah's Witness kid, but 
am I cool here because I can play basketball pretty good? Am I cool here because I can draw well or I did this particular project in school? You know, so I tried I tried to find my approval points. And I think that I still do in certain ways. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What did you see yourself being when you grew up as you were going around knocking on doors and stuff? To be quite honest, I didn't really know, you know, because there is this mindset of you work to pay your bills and the rest of your time should be spent in ministry when Mm -hmm. Jehovah's Witness, right? I didn't think that I was going to go to college. I didn't, you know, I was just kind of like, hey, I'm just going to be this protege Jehovah's Witness who got baptized at 10 and was going to preach around the world or live at the headquarters at that time, which was in Brooklyn. I guess that's what I'm going to do. So I didn't really have a plan. But when I got into like seventh or eighth grade and I learned about advertising, I learned about writing, I learned about copywriting, I learned how persuasive essays worked. I then found a passion for writing, and I think it was around 15 that I decided that I wanted to get involved in advertising. I wanted to write commercials for an advertising agency. That was my first dream gig. So that was around the time you, in your words, you ran away and you went to live with your aunt. What happened to initiate that? Rap music. Rap music is what happened. So my eighth grade teacher gave us this assignment where we had to sell a product (laughs) using a song. And I chose Ice Cubes. Today was a good day as the beat that I used. And I sold soap. And 
no one in my class knew that I could rap. And it became the talk of the eighth grade. And um, I just, you know, all of a sudden had this desire to express myself in uh, the hip hop forum. I was a huge fan of Nas and I bought a cassette tape. It ain't hard to tell, which was one of Nas's first singles. And I bought it and I hid it from my parents and they found it two days later, which in hindsight, I was almost mad that I was found out. Right. And it turned into a huge argument and I threw my clothes out the window. We lived in a one story home. I put all my clothes in a plastic bag, threw them out the window and jumped onto my clothes and ran to grandma's house because I just felt there was no privacy and I was making a stand on what I wanted for me. And it turned out to be one of the best decisions in my life. So you had been secretly harboring this love of hip hop, even though you weren't supposed to be listening to hip hop music. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a whole underground Jehovah's Witness, like the kids would get together and listen to hip hop without the adults knowing that they were doing that? Not a whole underground thing, but there were a couple of cats. And on Long Island, there was this radio station called WBAU, which was Adelphi University's college radio station. And some of the cornerstones of hip hop, they would be on that station all the time. So even though I was sneaking, I still gravitated towards like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, because in my brain, if I got caught, at least it was intelligent rap. It was seemingly playful. It was lighthearted. So those guys kind of became the first artists that I looked at as, oh, okay, you can you can be smart. You can have an extensive vocabulary and still sound cool. You can use jazz samples, which would make my stepdad happy, right? Because that's, you know, what I could listen to, Grover Washington at 10, right? So yeah, there was a, a festering love, but it still, I guess, had some moderation with it too. What is 310 Riverside Drive? 310 Riverside Drive. 310 Riverside Drive is Zoe Ministries. And Zoe Ministries is an amazing place where I spent many years of my life. From when I left home, I started going to church with my aunt and uncle. And that was their church you know, that they attended and were were very heavily involved in. And the bishop there, Bishop Jordan, is still a mentor of mine to this day, 20-something years later. He's taught me so much. I actually lived with him for about two or three years before I got married the first time. He has five children and a full family. And I basically was like his shadow and personal assistant and adjutant to the church and I learned so much about organization. I learned so much about how to govern a family, how to delegate responsibilities, and to, to kind of be selfless. He lived a very selfless life. And I think where he was selfish was taking the time for personal care, which was something that still sticks with me to this day. But your aunt, Aunt Justine, she was married to Reverend Ron. So was this right at at when he was going through his transition into becoming a minister? Yes, this was right after that happened, right as that was happening. Okay, what was that like in that house? 
And was there beef between them and your parents? I mean, was that like a thing that your parents were like, all right, you can go wherever you want? Or what? I wouldn't say that there was a beef. I think it was more of my mom and my stepdad being happy I was at least in their care. And there was some mm-hmm. sort of religious structure. I think that that's what my mom and stepdad cared about most. There was some religious structure and they would still invite me to come to the kingdom hall and, you know, whatever. I think they knew I was hard set on not returning home, but there was definitely no beef. You know, they couldn't because I was happy and I was excelling in school still. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't like out of their care, my life tanked. I think for me being around run at that time, becoming a minister or becoming an ordained reverend, to me, it was further proof that God and rap were okay together. You know what I'm saying? And I felt like that was the universe's way of telling me like, okay, you were in one place, you're kind of good at this thing. And you were in an environment that wouldn't let you do it because of the guise of it not being holy, it not being Christian. Right. And so now what the universe is going to do is take you out of that and place you with an even more involved and intense religious person, but with all the rap you want and the best stories about rap, you know. So it was further proof that God, in my opinion, creates us with talent and creates us with the ability to, you know, some of us to write well or to enunciate or to orate ourselves. And I looked at rap as a talent, as a gift. As long as I was using it for a good purpose and expressing myself, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And that was kind of like my proof. So you're open now as a rapper. Is this where you became Chris Classic? Yes. So I didn't have a name. I was kind of like toying with this moniker of, I'm sure you've heard of the brand Guess Jeans. And I loved the logo of Guess. It was the upside down triangle with the question mark. And I think that was going to be my first rap name, like Guess Who or something like that. So I didn't really have a name, you know, a rap name. But after church on Sunday was the only time that I could go to Jam Master J's studio to actually record stuff. That was when he had free time. And that's when I had free time away from the Simmons house. So I would go to the studio after church. I'd be kind of dressed up, you know what I'm saying? And the cats from Hollis, they're looking at me like, who is this nigga dressed up? (laughs) Jay thought that was an incredible kind of look. You know, he was like, hey, man, you could be like, you know, Frank Sinatra, but rap, you know, because I was comfortable in suits. I've been wearing them my whole life. And so I said something about something being classic and he and he just stopped and he's like, that's your name. That's your name. And he thought it should be Chris Classics. That was what he kept saying was the name. And to me, it felt like a DJ. So I kind of just said, I that's cool. I like the name Chris Classic, you know, and that was Jesus. That was uh, right after I graduated high school. So I'm going to say that was like 1999. And how were you looking at success at that point in your life? Like, if you were going to be successful, what does that look like? I don't know, 10 years from that point. Well, thankfully, I was able to do some 
domestic travel with Run DMC. They were on tour with Kid Rock and Aerosmith at that time. And veterans in the game, when they would perform for an hour, they needed a break. And so I was kind of like the five or seven minute entertainment break in the middle of Run DMC's set on the road with Kid Rock and Aerosmith, right? So for me, and this is, you know, 2000, before there's internet and, you know, well, not internet, but before there's social media. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping one day when I'm old, someone has all this old footage that I can see. But yeah, I got to rock in front of, you know, thousands of people almost every week. And for me, it was just like, I guess I'm on my way. And success to me at that particular point looked like, oh, okay, this is how you groom the next successor. This is how, you, you know, okay, maybe this is my lane, you know, rap in a lyrical way, but with some rock influence. I didn't know. I was just open to create something that was new. And Jay was producing. He had some other projects that he was working on ahead of mine. But, you know, there was already interest that people had from seeing me rock at the Run DMC show, especially when they did more of a black crowd or when they did club dates in a tri-state area. So it was just like, yo, who's this kid that sounds like a little Jay-Z rapping on stage with the braggadocious rapper of them all at that time, Run? It was just like, who's that? Right. So. It was definitely something that I saw as attainable and inevitable. And so that's why when Jay was killed in 2002, it was totally like plot twist. I definitely did not see that coming. And it completely threw my life for a loop. Just prior to that, you're out on the stage performing. I'm sure Ron gave you some performance tips from veteran to newbie, what were some of the tips that you learned in order to really engage or, or to keep the crowd excited? Well, for me at that time, I didn't have any songs of my own. So mm-hmm. the, the only thing that he could do at that particular point was give me the intro to speak at all. So during his show, when they were getting ready to take a, a break, he would just do these random freestyles and he would come up with this story about a young kid in the parking lot wanting to battle him, not knowing who he was. And so he would say his I'm run rhyme and the crowd would go crazy. And then he was like, okay, well, I guess I can't battle you. You got anybody else my age that I could battle. And then he would say, funny thing is I have my nephew with me. Come on, Chris. And I'd come out and I would do my little one, two, whatever. And that was that was my layup. That was my alley to, you know, perform. And I would I would rock for about four or five minutes. Jay would do the beatbox for me. They would get their rest, drink their water, wipe the sweat. You know, D was probably on the side of the stage doing push-ups to keep his cardio up. And I felt like a superstar, you know what I'm saying? But still waiting in the cut. You know, and, and I think all of the celebrities that I met, the producers, the Jermaine Dupri's, the, you know, Kid Capri's, the everyone who I looked up to, I think they all looked at me like, he's next, but I can't overstep Run and Jay and poach him. You know what I'm saying? So 
it was just a lot of waiting and a lot of honing the craft of performing and kind of living into it and enjoying it. I heard Daryl McDaniel, DMC, I heard him on a podcast recently. He was talking about his struggles with mental health and he was having suicidal thoughts and he was heavily drinking at that time that you're describing. And I'm curious if you were aware of any of that. And if so, what was your take on it as a younger performer? You know, you obviously look up to these guys thinking, okay, these guys are successful. They've sold so many albums. Like this is where this career is going, but what's going on with this guy? Why is he staying at a different hotel from everybody else, et cetera? Did you have any awareness of that? No. What my awareness of D and just the collective is, it's kind of like they're veterans at this point, right? And so you can imagine, just think about like related to sports. If the Lakers are they're coming to Atlanta and they have to stay for two nights. LeBron is probably not staying where the rest of the rookies are staying. And so in the run DMC culture at that point, run who was extremely afraid of any sort of anything messing up his life, uh, middle-aged groupie running in the room, flashing, whatever it was. He just didn't want to be a part of it. After the show, he would basically hide, go in the room and call my aunt. You know what I'm saying? Like that was his, I'm staying out of trouble. You know, J and D were more like, hey, we have friends. Where are we at? Oh yeah, we have friends over here. We're, We're cool, you know, whatever. And so I just, at that particular time, I didn't know of any mental health or any alcohol abuse for me, it was just like backstage having Heinegans with Run DMC. It's what goes on, right? And them staying at separate hotels was just a matter of finance. For me, I just thought D doesn't care. D loves the Marriott, so he's staying at a Marriott, wherever it is. Jay don't care because he's going to be out and about, and so he just needs a place to lay his head. And my uncle wanted to be in the fancy spot away from everybody that no one's going to bother him. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And that had a good spa or a good chef, you know, the the things that he cared about. So what that taught me, if anything, was that you can be professional and work together and still have a self-identity. It wasn't until later that I I found out some of the struggles that, you know, Dee was going through. Was that around the time that you and, and Ron collaborated with Let's Get Married on the remix? Yeah, it was around that time. Actually, that okay. was a, that was a little after that. And that was a matter of me just, you know, him getting the call from Jermaine Dupree of wanting to do it, to use the beat first. I think that was the first call. Hey, man, we, you know, I got this idea for a remix. Once you on it. And my uncle just got to writing. I came in the basement and he was just, you know, reciting. It. And I'm like, oh, and I was just finishing lines like. All right. What about this? And all right, I'll take that. You know what I'm saying? And so it was was very much like a fun Sunday project to just write something that became a a smash remix. But that fun Sunday project ended up launching you into becoming a very successful songwriter. It did. You know, a lot of people who, who were aware of my input inquired. And, you know, there were other projects that, you know, Run was working on at the time. There was a group that he was producing out of Queens, basically like 
there were these three kids from Queens, from the neighborhood that we would always see when we went to get Chinese food. And you could tell that they loved hip hop culture. You know, they were white, but they knew every Nas and AZ lyric. And for all intents and purposes, they considered themselves to be quintessential hip hop heads. And the street that we found them on was Union Turnpike. That's where the Chinese food place was. And so when it became time to do something with them, that was the name, Union Turnpike. And that was a fun thing that we we collaborated on, too. So just when we started working with Union Turnpike, we met this guy, Ali D. And Ali D became the one when Jam Master J was killed, Ali D was the one who kind of said, hey, man, you're an incredible songwriter and rapper. I'm working on some stuff for Hollywood. Maybe you can can write on some of this stuff. And that was another pivot in my life. And that became the start of, you know, my my career in film and TV. So would you say, looking back, that if Jam Master J had not been killed, your your life would have gone in a different direction, your career would have gone in a different direction? Because it sounds like you guys are really close as a producer and performer. Most likely. But again, I'm not the creator, so I don't know what the universe had in store for me. But that was definitely the trajectory, yes. And then you started working at D-Town. Is that where you wrote most of your music? Yeah. So D-Town started off with just Ali D, me, and this guitarist, Vinny. And um, Ali, his pedigree was he was one of the first white producers that were was given a pass in hip hop. So he was saying the N word and all that stuff. No, 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 he wasn't. I mean, as far as producers go, as far uh, as making beats that were not just automatically assumed. Oh, it's this white Jewish kid that made it. It must be whack, right? It was kind of right. Like, Wait a minute, was who made that? You know, Hank Shockley made that? No, no, he had to be. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, he produced stuff on a Juice soundtrack and produced a lot of, you know, some stuff for, for PE as well. So he was definitely someone who was a jack of all trades and could make just about anything. So learning through him was very influential in film and TV. At this time in your life, are you loyal to any certain brands of perfumes or scents or colognes or anything like that? Or are you just kind of, what's your relationship like to that world? At that particular time, the only thing that I wore was Creed Imperial Melesame. And I learned about that from DMC because Mm -hmm. he would wear that. And then he wouldn't tell me what it was for like two years. (laughs) A lot of guys are like that. They don't they don't share what their sense is. Yeah. But I think again, I think he remembered I was a teenager and was just like, well, you can't afford this anyway. He didn't say that, but I felt like that was the here, man, it's the gold bottle, okay? And then that was also something that Ali wore. Not all the time, but it was one of his favorite, you know, scents. And so that became my quintessential signature sent probably for like five or six years. That was the thing that got me into exploring niche fragrances. Many years later, you met this guy at the co-working space 
in Atlanta. Can you tell that story of how that even transpired? Just to backtrack a little, my son was born in 2004. Um, Juju. Yeah. And so, you know, our relationship is very strong, but that came from him kind of spending most of his time with me after his mom and I split. And so because I worked in Manhattan and he went to school in Manhattan, I was sharing my journey of taking him to school every day and picking him up from school and still having an active social life. And that balance became something very interesting for people to see because I don't think they had seen it in the social media format. You know what I'm saying? And so that's where the following on social media came from. It came from my life as a dad and a creative and a social person in New York City. And I think also in hindsight, coming out of a divorce, it was more like, okay, well, I'm going here with her. I'm going here with her. These are my homegirls. And it was a matter of saying, you know what? You can balance both. You can be responsible and you can also be a little ratchet, right? And that became something that a lot of people started following me for, including this, this guy. And so he reached out to me. I was now in Atlanta. He asked if I can kind of like consult or give him some guidance on balancing being an entrepreneur and being a husband and a father. And so we met at the gathering spot. And basically after the first meeting, he was telling me about some failed businesses that he had, which had him kind of like in a rut. One of those failed businesses was a perfume and candle brand. So I'm like, okay, well, if you're telling me about some failed businesses, you ain't broke, but I still don't feel like I can charge you for just talking about life. How about this? How about you help me make a bottle of cologne for myself that no one else will have and we'll call it even. And, you know, he agreed. And we worked on it for like 10 months because in the middle of it, it was kind of like, this is cool. And man, maybe I should do something with this. So every time I would leave the gathering spot, I would ask all the people at the bar what they thought of the fragrance that we were tinkering with. And it got to a point where everyone wanted it. I would imagine creating your own perfume or cologne. It's not, it's a bit of an involved process, right? So, you know, you have these conversations, you say these things to people. Yeah. Can you help me teach me how to speak Spanish or teach me? How to, it's like the follow-up is usually not that strong. In this case, what made the follow-up so strong that you invested this amount of time into this thing that you were even at the point where you were asking people their opinions? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to seeking approval in the mm. way in which I can. When you're married and you share a photo or video, you're not, you're not looking for anyone to tell you you're handsome. You kind of would like people to just appreciate you for what you're sharing, right? And so for me, I felt like I was creating something. And I wanted it to smell good. I wanted it to be an unmistakable, unforgettable thing. And as we were working on it, it was just kind of like, I felt like we were breaking ground on something, but even in his life of helping him see how he could do certain things in his life different. 
And we weren't meeting like every week. It was more like every two weeks. So maybe like once a month, sometimes twice. And it just became, wait a minute, people like this? Let me, let me ask some more people. And then that became the thing. You know, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my focus group. You guys would meet at the gathering spot? Uh-huh. So he would bring his big case of little vials of different oils and different fragrances and stuff. And you guys would sit there at a table and just kind of play with different mixes. The gathering spot has, well, at that particular time, they were individual conference rooms that, you, you know, if you're a member, you can just request it. And so we would go in there because it was enclosed. Mm-hmm. And the only times that he came with like a lot of different notes was the first two times. After the first two times, I kind of knew what I was looking for. And so we didn't have to bring too much. And then I was also starting to buy stuff of my own. Then it became when I was home and bored at three in the morning, I was sitting at my dining room table doing stuff myself, bringing it back to him like, yo, what do you think about this? You know? So I kind of grew my own organ, the perfumer's organ of fragrances and, and notes and different musks and ouds that, you know, I really liked. And I still collect them today and I'm always tinkering. I have a desk that is just full of random things that I will occasionally sit at and just mix things, knows it. If I love it, I'll write down what I did. If I don't love it, I'll pour it out and go about my day like nothing happened. This is around 2017, right? Yes. At this point, you've done, I think, what, like 250 plus songs that are being licensed to various Hollywood films and and commercials and stuff like that. So are you looking for another job or another gig or transition? Are you just looking for a hobby or what was your thinking in terms of how serious you were going to take this? At that time, I was looking for a corporate gig in advertising. I'm always looking for a gig in advertising. To this day, I still want to be able to say I'm a copywriter at an advertising agency. That's just my bucket list thing because the role and functions of a copywriter are exactly what I did with film and television. I was writing song, you know, writing songs for a script, for a target audience, for a key demographic, you know, with buzzwords and, you know, all of those things. So I was essentially writing ads to music, which was much more difficult because it had to rhyme and sound good, you know? So that was the only thing I was focusing on at that particular time. I had met Tyrese once I got here to Atlanta and began writing with him on, you know, a project that he was beginning to work on. And I still work with him to this day. And so, you know, I had a bunch of different things on the fire, but none of them were close to like a fragrance brand. I definitely didn't think that was happening at all. And you asked the guy who was sort of mentoring you through this, you asked him to go into business with you. Yeah. At first he said, yes, let's do it. And then I started buying stuff. You know, I started figuring out, okay, well, how much sandalwood extract will we need, right? How much, how many bottles do we need? Where are we going to find the right bottle caps? What about boxes? I started buying stuff and 
I didn't ask him for any money. I, you know, I kind of considered it like, all right, well, listen, if you're going to help me, we can make money together on the back end. Since I, I kind of have it right now, let me front the cost of, of the goods. And so it seemed like everything was going to go. I didn't make an announcement or anything at that particular time. And then once I got stuff in, I forget, there was one thing that I think it was when bottles came. I'm like, this is real. So I posted a picture on Instagram of like a bottle and some some eyedroppers and a couple of different measuring glasses. And it was just like coming soon, right? And in the comments, because I've been sharing the journey of tinkering, but not that it was a business. And there were comments of people looking to pre-order just from one picture with no label. And I never heard from him after that day. He didn't return my calls. He didn't return my emails. I tried to find where he lived. I didn't know exactly where he lived. I just went out of my way to, hey, listen, this is the final email. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) All you have to do is reply and say that you're down and you got it. I didn't know if he was just thinking that I was, I don't know. I don't know. Still to this day, I don't know what happened. But my wife is of the impression that he may have saw what seemed like interest in something that he previously failed in being knowledgeable and my novice self introducing it and it appearing like people would gravitate to it may have rubbed them the wrong way. I don't know. And I've never had the clarity of an answer. But what I do know is that because I was afraid of the legal ramifications, if I would have gone ahead with what him and I worked on together, that he would have had entitlement to any funds that came from it. So I immediately had to learn how to come up with something else on my own after I had already made the announcement that it was coming soon and it was about to be Black Friday in like two months. So that is what gave me my chops. I created a fragrance called Signature. Well, now it's called Signature. It had tomato leaf and leather as a top notes with sandalwood, amber and musk. And it smells amazing. It dries down. It's, you know, beautifully. It's complex. And I'm still a novice in comparison to people who go to Grasse in France to study perfumery under, you know, the master perfumers. So it's all God, quite honestly. It's, it's all trial and error. It comes from a place of love. I love the fact that I can make things that make people smell good and feel good about how they carry themselves and they can walk into a room with confidence. And I, I look at that as something that's way bigger than me and my name. That's why I think it's been successful. It's because it's really a service. It's really something that I'm making for, for people to enjoy and to feel good. So the original blend is in a vault somewhere. No one, is, no one has actually smelled it yet. When I moved into the space here, I opened it and it smells amazing. It's, it's macerated, so meaning it's, it's matured quite a lot and it's settled and it's way heavier than I remember. 
but it's it's still pretty amazing. And something like it would probably be great for like a a candle, but one of those candles that you would give to a guy for like his man cave kind of thing. And I think where I'm at with the brand is making things for everyone and having kind of limited or, or at least marketing things inclusive of everyone and not just this is for dudes who have beards only, you know? So that's the, the type of fragrance that it is. So you decided to take, or maybe, maybe you didn't have a choice in the matter, but to take a very hands-on artisanal approach to the creation of what became Savoir Faire. And you obviously, you know, in writing and producing and creating music, that's also very hands-on. Are there any differences in the feeling of someone licensing your song versus someone connecting with your fragrance to you? Yes, it's, it's a big difference. And the difference for me is if you can imagine a painter who paints almost erotica or, or, or like boudoir type of paintings mm-hmm. and they're very intricate and detailed and amazing, but then because of the nature of it, not as many people buy it, but what people do request from that painter is for him to do murals on the sides of walls in like cool condo buildings, right? Like, I feel like that's how my music is. The music that I make for myself, the music that I put out on Spotify or on Bandcamp or that I used to use on SoundCloud for myself is way different than the music that I am hired to create for film and TV. And so there's a slight disconnect between what's coming from me as Chris and then what my voice can project or what my brain is thankfully smart enough to conceive for a specific scene or goal. The fragrance is something that's, it's just all heart. The fragrance is all, I want you to turn every head when you're wearing this. The fragrance is my rap music. It is not commercialized in any type of way, as far as the fragrance. Mm. And tell me about the name. Did it come to you in a dream? Were you sitting out in the shower? Like, How did the name occur to you? The unstated rules or expectations in perfumery are not inclusive of Black creators and Black perfumers. Mm. And so it is almost assumed that a fragrance is better quality if it is made by someone that you may not know, but they have an Italian or French name. Here Mm. in America, it's the new fragrance from Vernicio is, I gotta get it, it must be good. I can't even pronounce his name. Right. You know, savoir faire is a phrase that I've heard a lot throughout my life, the same way many of us have heard. Oh, that person has a certain je ne sais quoi. Right. It's it's a it's a flair. Savoir faire in French literally means to know how to be, to know how to do. It doesn't matter where you are. You can just kind of just pick up and figure it out. And I feel like that's the exact plight of most black creatives today. 
being in New York and, you know, taking my son to school and being around the private school moms who have drivers and they go to Starbucks and start drinking mimosas at, you know, 9 a.m. There's a certain way that you have to be with them or, you know, that I had to be with them. And then to transition to go to the studio and, you know, hang out with people there. Then to go back and pick up Julian and then to go out and be social. Those are different hats. Those are different layers. And I feel like so many of us have to be different people every single day, whether it's a parent, whether it's a husband, whether, you know, you're an educator, whether you're in finance, whatever it is, we have so many different layers. And Savoir Faire was it because it covered the French part. It's called Savoir Faire. They must, they must know something. It must be acceptable. But it's really something that has nothing to do with the French language at all. The, it's it, that's kind of the Trojan horse. It's it's kind of like I'm gonna get you to pay attention to it and take it seriously, but then when you when you smell it, there are certain essences of us that are undeniable and unmistakable. You also it, it has the symbol of the crown, which is the five pointed crown. Why not four points or three points like Basquiat? How'd you how'd you come up with the five points? I'm sure it was intentional. Yes. So I'm a huge Basquiat fan. Oh, my God. Like I have uh, prints of his in my home and always have had some sort of representation of Basquiat. But what I appreciated about the crown that became so iconic for him, it was that it wasn't perfect. There's no significance of five per se, other than I just wanted it to not have three like Basquiat. But for me, the intentional point was to not have it be perfect because for me the crown is your own personal standard right and so everyone's going to draw it a little differently the point is that you have it the crown and even calling ourselves kings and queens i think that's more of an intrinsic type of feeling an esoteric standard of excellence that you hold yourself accountable for um whatever whatever your idea of royalty is or being regal that's what the the crown is about to me and a lot of people you know saw it after you know the h&m situation and that that's become like now people are are sending me dms almost every day you know when someone licenses basquiat's work or basquiat's crown in their brand they're like i think they're stealing your stuff they're stealing your stuff you know So I have to to deflect back to no, that's Basquiat's. And I I kind of, you know, took a a bar from him. So the crown's become pretty popular, at least in in social media circles. And I'm I'm happy to tell people that it's about you, you know, Mm. your, your, your personal standards. So sales wise, did you have beginner's luck? And it was like, you know, right out of the gate, you were like selling out or just was a slow build or what was your experience with that? Slow build. Because you're selling basically on social media. You're selling perfume, which is something you actually have to smell. Yeah. But you're selling it online. What is the trick to that? When I started exploring fragrances and sharing them on social media, it was 2011, 2013. And I'd been sharing fragrances since then. And I'd been sharing restaurants and cocktails from, you know, New York and, you know, exploring the city almost every other day. So there was already some sort of built up trust within my audience of 
Chris always shows us nice stuff. And so I don't want to say it was beginner's luck, but I was still very apprehensive because scent is extremely subjective. I think what worked was the fact that I was making small batches and it was very unique. I want to say the first scent was very polarizing. To this day, there are people who only wear signature and then there are people who didn't really care for it so much. They were just, you know, being supportive and just, hey, man, I'll check out a bottle. And so when I started to realize that that kind of interest was beginning to plateau a little bit, that's when I created Bon Noir. That is when things kind of picked up because it was like, okay, this is different than that. And this smells really good. Because again, I, I want to say Signature was rather rushed because it was a last minute, oh shit, what am I going to do? Part of my language is like, a, oh no, what am I going to do? And so I had more time and I had more love and I had more fun creating Bon Noir and then Soul Cafe. Is it like Zappos where if someone gets it and they don't like the smell, they can exchange it or return it? Or how does that work? No, typically what I'll do is I'm knocking on wood a little bit. <laughs> so in the last four years, I have had five people ask for an exchange or refund. Mm-hmm. And that's out of 10,000 orders. And so for me, I realized that those people who may say, listen, I wanted to love it. I'm supporting you, brother, but it's just not for me. I dig it. So what I'll typically do is send them samples of the other two just Mm -hmm. to see if they like one. And if they do, which most of the time, then it's someone getting signature and perhaps not liking signature. And so they'll like, you know, I'll take the Soul Cafe. So I'll send them the bottle and then I'll just ask that they gift signature to someone else that may appreciate it or, you know, can use it or they can use it as a diffuser in the car, you know, whatever you can make some other use for it. But I, I don't think safety wise, I can receive it back. Thankfully people have liked the fragrances. Soul Cafe is probably the most popular one, which is why I have more products based on that particular fragrance and I'm working on two more. So we'll, we'll see. It's a, it's a slow process. I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun. I'm, feeling good about the work because it is literally a service. And since 2018, uh, the only other person that I knew or met who had a fragrance brand was a brother here in Atlanta, Sean Crenshaw, who has a brand called Ovation. Now, Ovation is a cologne for men, but he has been extremely instrumental and helpful in connecting me with people. And we've just developed this camaraderie of let's really turn this into something that black men and women can aspire to do and possibly know that they may do it better than us with more time to research. So since 2017, there's no live seen about 30 brands come out of people who may have been sitting on the idea since they were kids or sitting on the idea, you know, since 2010, 12, whatever. 
but they just seeing the success of Savoir Fair and of Ovation and of some others was kind of like, oh, I'm, I guess I got to do it, you know? So I, I recognize that particular place legacy-wise. So I'm very thankful that people are watching and I'm trying to make the mistakes that they don't have to. After 10,000 orders, what do you learn about yourself and about the process? I learned that I'm still knocking on doors. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I'm still doing something that most people aren't. I'm still serving at the end of the day. I also learned that I didn't have the business acumen that I thought financially Mm -hmm. just learning certain stuff that I didn't even know existed, the need for financial mentors. And I have an incredible business partner, Brett Holcomb, who has just been kind of like, you know, when you watch a football game, the plays come from way up high, right? And it's because they can see the field. And then they talk to the quarterback who has a earpiece in his helmet. Right. And it's just like, that's how I feel. I feel like, okay, I'm pretty good at the action and the athletics, but the plays, they don't come natural to me. It's something that I'm, I'm having to learn and then execute. So it's a very humbling thing that no matter what perceived success you have, you can mess it all up by doing the wrong thing. I've also learned the need to take care of the people that work with me as far as making sure that they are set up to do something great for themselves. I think every situation that I've been involved in, maybe it's the universe protecting me, but when people didn't treat me right or do the right thing by me, their businesses failed. So for me, it's just like, if you're going to work with me and, and for the brand, Oh, well, what's your business? Where's your LLC? What you got going on? What can I help you with? What can you learn while you're here? What can I put and impart into your life? Because I don't expect you to carry my dream and my vision all your life. You know what I'm saying? What what can this help you with? What can you Mm. contribute and and take? Because at the end of the day, I, I want my legacy to be that of Someone who, you know, was creative, but also instrumental in opening doors for people or unlocking people's talents or the desire to, you know, create their own legacy. Yeah. And I'm glad you keep bringing it back to this idea of service, right? It's it's more of a service to you, to your spirit, probably. Because from what I can see from my end, watching you engage on social media, it comes off as... You're not doing it to get happy. You're doing it because you are happy, because, you know, that whatever you feel inside is inspiring you to share this in the way that you're sharing it with the world and not just through the product, but through the story. It's really the story that people are buying into, I feel, right? Because like you said, you know, since you were co-parenting Juju with his mom, you became very, maybe you were already very transparent and vulnerable and social media was just an outlet for it. I don't know. But when did you connect that with 
the popularity of the product? Like, did you notice any correlation between, hey, look, when I really get out here and just tell my truth, people go crazy for this stuff <laughs> or versus when I'm hiding a little bit, people, people don't. I'm going to say my core audience, if you will, not an audience that I target, but an audience that I want to say resonates with me the most are women that are between the ages of 28 and 50. And what they appreciate is, okay, here's a guy who hangs out a little bit, but he also goes home and he has a wife and a cute little baby and he has two teenage boys and he isn't trying to tell us how to be women. And I like it. So for me, I know that that is my core audience. And a lot of times, many women will buy things for their significant other or for their sons or nephews or brothers. And then because the fragrances are unisex, they end up liking them for themselves. And I think as as men, we kind of do the same thing. If we may, you know, if our significant other is on a fitness journey, we may look at someone who's on Instagram and they're like, man, all right, she's in shape and she seems cool and savvy. Let me let me get her these compression shorts. Maybe she likes these, you know, from this person. And, that, you know, I, I want her to have that same energy and vibe. So let me get these. So I think that's really what it comes from. I think people do buy you instead of your product these days. But what I really feel is that the product is bigger than me. So I'm just being myself and and because I feel like there aren't enough examples of it. A lot of times people use social media as a highlight reel, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that balance is better. It appeals to the authenticity in people. Say somebody, one of these other 30 people came up to you or hit you up on DM or whatever and said and was asking you for advice for their their fragrance brand. And you could only give one piece of advice. What would that piece of advice be? Cross the board. Make something that you absolutely love. That could apply to anything too, which is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's it. That's the that's the magic. The magic mm-hmm. is do you love it? Because I think today, everyone can tell. When it comes to things that are for the senses, I want to say, a shirt, there may not be so much emotionally invested in a shirt, per se, right? And so if you're a crazy looking guy with big orange hair that looks a little weird, you may be able to sell a really serious and heavy t-shirt. Because you're, you're removed from it. It's not, about, it's not about you, right? But you may not go to eat at that guy's restaurant. You may not want to buy mm-hmm. something that he's saying, I'm making it myself. And he's, you know, crazy looking. You may not connect with that, right? So when you make things that you love, I just feel like nowadays people can tell. And I think no matter if you're struggling with your product, if you really love it, it won't matter. You won't stop as quickly as someone who's just looking for a, a flip. Beautiful, man. And you, uh, you're a family man. You got a new kid, recently married in the last few years. How are you thinking about success these days? 
I'm looking at success as less financial than previously. Most of the people who get really, really rich and wealthy end up giving it away. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, okay, so you go on this paper chase, you, you know, ignore your kids, you go through several marriages chasing this wealth. And then when you catch up with it, you realize that it was not money or you have money already now. No one's looking at your money. They're looking at your character. Oh, okay. Now you feel like, you know, boo-boo because you didn't live your life. So for me, success is being able to spend the hours from 7.45 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. with my daughter cutting up strawberries and string cheese and looking at Daniel Tiger. Like for me, that's success at this particular point because I'm able to control my time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not I'm not necessarily going somewhere because I have to. Now, again, if I don't work, I don't eat, right? And so, you know, yeah, there is a, a time for everything. But I think for me personally, success is being able to manage my time. Of course, do would I love to, to be a multimillionaire or even a billionaire? Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, and at the same time, it's just like, Listen, there are people that may see me as that already who may not know the ins and outs or the bottom lines of mine financially because it feels happy, which is usually what <laughs> we assign to wealth, you know. So, yeah, man, su- success takes on so many different things, but I'm definitely looking at it as less financial and mm-hmm. about, you know, your quality of life, your friends, who you have around you? What did you do to make someone else's life better? Who can you call at 2.17 in the morning to say, yo, guess what? That counts. All of that counts. Being able to sleep at night, feeling good when you look in the mirror, not because you're necessarily so attractive, but because you are comfortable with you. I love that. Well, look, man, that's our time. I want to offer one reflection back to what you talked about in your childhood being your favorite activity, which is sports. And you said that you would play with friends or you play by yourself, even though you had these restrictions, but you made the best of the restrictions. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, in some ways, it wasn't really even about playing sports, it was about, hey, I want to I want to find my tribe and I want to express myself through this activity, my true self and the things that I'm excited about, the thing that lights me up inside. And I, right. I, it's it seems from talking to you that you've done that in many areas of your life, you're doing that now. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation, not necessarily because I'm interested in fragrances as, a, you know, personally, although I do wear fragrances, but and I've never smelled Savoir Fair, and I'm looking forward to doing that one day when I get back to town. I'm in Mexico right now, so that's a whole other story. But <laughs> it's just the energy and the generosity and the spirit behind you, what you do and how you do it that is, is attractive. And I feel like, you know, like you said, you're not trying to connect with everybody. You're connecting with the people who resonate with that with that and who feel aligned with that. And so I just want to acknowledge you, man, for uh, 
for doing what you do and being an advocate for fatherhood and for blackness and for entrepreneurship and for doing stuff from the heart. And I feel like all of the, the real measures of success these days. And so, yeah, you're a great example out there. I think you leave the viewers of your Instagram account and your social media stuff feeling better as an oasis in a sea of sort of despair. And I just want to acknowledge you for that and appreciate you for that. So thank you so much for sharing your story and for coming on here. And uh, I look forward to sharing this with the people. Thank you, man. I, I sincerely appreciate it. It feels great to be seen and heard and I don't, I don't take it for granted. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to my interview with Chris Classic. I have linked to all of the ways you can check out Savoir Fair and follow Chris on social media. His handle on Instagram is at Mr. Chris Classic, M-R-C-H-R-I-S-C-L-A-S-S-I-C. All that is in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel, along with a transcript of my interview with Chris. And if you want to hear more of these stories about people who've switched careers or who've overcome health challenges, you can now search my podcast episodes by topic. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. You'll see a list of all of the podcast episodes. And then above it is a drop down menu of subjects like leap of faith and perseverance and financial difficulties. So in case you want to hear a particular kind of conversation, it'll show you all of the episodes that are related to that particular topic. And while you're on my site exploring topics, make sure to look in the navigation menu and click on the link entitled Books. And you're going to see all of the information about my new book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. If you haven't heard of it before, it's a book that is full of my own personal stories, as well as classic stories and anecdotes that are meant to provide you with a dose of inspiration. And I know that some people don't like reading books. I'm with you on that. The good news is with this book, it's not meant to be read from cover to cover. Instead, it's designed to be flipped open to any page that catches your eye and you'll likely find a dose of inspiration that'll only take you 30 seconds or a minute to read and not longer than that. Also, you'll see a link on my website to my new online community where you can learn meditation and get support and connect with people from all over the world who share your enthusiasm for doing the real work that helps to stabilize inner happiness. It's called the Happiness Insiders Community. And if you have a copy of Knowing Where to Look, for a very limited time, you can get complimentary access to that community. All of the instructions are on the site. And otherwise, I look forward to seeing you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one has told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, 
Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.